there, Bill. How are you doing today? Hey, good day, Robin. Good to be with you again. How are you? I am fantastic. All the better for talking to you and discussing all of the latest security issues that have popped up over the past 7 to 14 days. So we've had a bit of a very weird period over the past few weeks, with multiple Indeed. exploits hopping into the, the world, including what I've seen, a huge resurgence of the Raspberry Robin, which kind of got very popular in, I think it was March or May. So a friend I was talking at that works for a large defense organization, they are starting to see a large spike in those attacks. So Absolutely. I want to preface this episode with telling people that we focus a lot on the new. The new is exciting, it's shiny, it's fun, but don't forget about things in the past. Are you seeing any old attacks or old exploits that are cropping up these days? You know, we are still seeing that and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are people that simply don't want to reinvent the wheel, Robin. And there are an infinite numbers, number of ways to be creative with some of those old tool sets and the ways that we approach. This is one of the reasons why it's so important not to just look at it from the perspective of what's new, but to look at it from the perspective of the way in which threat actors act and beginning to identify some of those patterns. That's what really gives us the true insight. So very, very important to understand what's new but equally important to understand the history and where that's going to take us. Indeed, and if you look at the history, you also have to look at old operating systems. I was talking to a customer last week that still has a lot of Windows Vista deployed places because the applications they used were designed and coded to be used on Vista. And upgrading to Windows 7, Windows 10, Windows 11, nobody wants Windows 11. But that has caused a substantial hole in the network, especially when vendors such as Microsoft aren't patching, which comes into clutch that you need something defending that perimeter. Something like Kato. But hey, here we are today. Now, when we talk about defending our perimeter, we need to focus on bases as well. So let's start with a classic meme of all your base are belong to us and somebody <laughs> set us up the bomb, Impacket. What That's is right. Impacket? So Impacket is a, an interesting combination of both malware and uh, some techniques to be able to infiltrate or ex, excuse me, exfiltrate data. Uh, where we have seen this very recently was uh, alarmingly was utilized against the defense industrial base. Uh, in particular, it did take place in the US. And for those who aren't familiar with the defense industrial base, what that term means, this is the sector that does uh, research and development, production and delivery and maintenance of military weapon systems. So here we have a particular piece of malware, a particular approach that's being utilized to attack those systems, oftentimes via completely unknown vectors to, to strike an area that I think is of tremendous concern for all of us when it comes to uh, potential vulnerabilities. Okay, so to exfiltrate, you must first infiltrate, as you can't Correct. steal stuff if you're not in the shop. You know, it's very difficult to steal if you're not present. So That's I right. would presume that these industrial bases, and bear, please bear in mind, I'm an ignorant European, your American ways are incredibly foreign to me. <laughs> How are they not secured? I presume like missile plans would be something that people really guard closely. So how did this happen? You know, one of the wonderful things, Robin, is that people are people. And in this particular instance, although we don't know what the initial vector was, where we did see it first showing up was 
sitting on Exchange Server. So you mentioned at the outset of this episode, talking about Microsoft, this is where we saw it first. And once it landed on that Exchange Server via the, the initial attack vector, what we see is a lot of east-west traffic. So little reconnaissance going on. What is interesting about Impacket is that this east-west reconnaissance is being performed using the command shell. There's a concept of living off the land. So in this particular case, there really is nothing to find uh, as far as the east-west reconnaissance from a malware or signature perspective. Now, once that's been done, that east-west reconnaissance, the data is identified that the threat actor wishes to exfiltrate. And in that case, that's where we've seen a known piece of malware called Covalent Stealer that is responsible for getting that data out of the environment. So indeed, you're right, Robin. First, you have to infiltrate and certainly do that reconnaissance before you begin to exfiltrate. And that's what we're seeing right now with Impacket. So some Snoopy spies managed to sneak in somehow and deploy a known malicious payload. Indeed. So how does Cato prevent this from happening? Because if you don't have a signature or a detection, then people can just get in, right? It's, it's true. And we see so many of these attacks taking place right now with these threat vectors that serve as a combination of, of methodologies. Mm. Uh, in this particular case, we would be able to catch that with a robust intrusion prevention system for the URLs that, it are, that are being used as the targets for that exfiltration. Uh, we should be able to see that, whether it's a uh, URL that we know is of a low reputation or if we identify that the particular URL looks like it's been quick generated by a, a domain generation algorithm. So that's the first part, right, is, is closing down that channel for exfiltration. The second aspect is having a next generation anti-malware solution that's going to identify that covalent stealer, that piece that's responsible for packaging everything up and getting it ready for transport. Having those two things, and as you indicated, that perimeter that is so very important uh, from a zero trust perspective, that's gonna identify that and shut that down. Absolutely. You know, I'm a, a huge proponent of zero trust. And it's not just zero trust in the world of technology and infrastructure, but zero trust in everything in my life. If somebody sends me a text message saying, hey, please log into your bank, I don't trust that. <laughs> so a zero right. trust lifestyle is something that kind of keeps you protected no matter what you're doing, whether using tech or not. So Robin, I love what you said there. And, and I wanna really focus on one particular element of what you just shared the people component we we say this every time that is so critical zero trust is interesting because in, in a way the the cybersecurity industry has abused the term they've tried to make it a a product more than anything else but what you say is it's spot on it really is an overall approach quite honestly we could be here for a few hours talking about zero trust and how it plays out not only from a cybersecurity perspective, but from a human behavioral perspective, which is often the first vector that threat actors try to utilize. Well, if you'd like to know more about Zero Trust listeners, we'll be doing a Convergence podcast on Zero Trust coming soon. If you're Absolutely. not familiar with Convergence, this is a little podcast where I grab some industry experts and we discuss topics that's not specifically related to Cato, but might benefit you, whether that be writing effective documentation, talking to a CISO, or making your voice being heard, convergence is for you. So it sounds right. like the impact it problem could have been resolved effectively, or not resolved, mitigated 
if they were using Kato at that time. Because, sure, they might get into your network. We could have blocked that with looking at domain reputation, using some form of secure web transactions. We could have blocked the file lateral movement with next-gen anti-malware. Well, that's very interesting, that if you had something in the perimeter protecting, this might not be a big problem. But reality, reality is struck. <laughs> All people can do is look at things that have happened, learn from those mistakes, and improve forward. Absolutely. Now, a big thing about improving comes to patching. Mm. PLCs, patching is logical. Tell me more. So very interestingly, we talk a lot about perimeter and we, we really have kind of touched that subject pretty heavily since the outset of, of us speaking today. Uh, perimeter is, is critically important when you look at things like patching because clearly you need that opportunity. You know, we, we have these concepts of patch Tuesdays or wanting to vet out those patches before they're put in place because obviously a critical component of cybersecurity is availability and we, we really can't have patching negatively impacting the availability of the applications or the business processes that we use. But this particular case is very interesting. Uh, it, for those that aren't familiar, a PLC is a programmable logic controller. These are pieces of equipment that actually manage automation systems. So you see this a lot within manufacturing, these programmable logic controllers control all of those, uh, shall we call them robots, that help build the things that, that we know and we love so much. In this particular case, a vulnerability was identified in the Siemens Cymatic PLCs. This vulnerability actually ranked really, really high on the CVSS scoring system. This was a 9.3 vulnerability. Now there is patching that's available, but the practicality of trying to patch large numbers of PLCs, very, very difficult. Uh, and that's why the, the perimeter is very, very important in helping to mitigate this while a plan is developed to roll out these patches. For those who aren't aware, what is CVSS? Why, what is 9.3? So CVSS is the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, and it's essentially a scale that goes up to, to 10 that tells you how severe that particular vulnerability is. Anything higher than 7 on that scale is considered high risk. So when you see a 9.3, you know that this is something that you need to pay attention to right away. So um, <laughs> a nine and above is effectively the house is on fire. You're being woken up at two o'clock in the morning. Quickly run as fast as you can and firefighting for the remainder of the week. Well said. <laughs> got it, got <laughs> it. So if it's a PLC, if it's a programmable controller, I presume a factory automation, you can't just shut down an entire production cycle. So That's right. how do you protect against this? Well, again, as we mentioned, having an effective perimeter and an effective converged threat management solution is going to be your best bet. You know, we're really talking about industrial Internet of Things at this point. In this particular case with, with this PLC, and, and this is a broadly used uh, widespread PLC that's, that's uh, employed for automation, this was a case of firmware that was vulnerable. Now, when we say vulnerable firmware, this isn't just a matter of being able to get in and shut things down. Actually, the reverse is true on this one. This vulnerability allowed a threat actor to access the firmware and steal the cryptographic keys 
that give them access to elevated controls of those programmable logic controllers. So what this means is the threat actor, by exploiting this vulnerability within the firmware, gets a hold of those keys and can now execute orders on those programmable logic controllers. When this came to light, a lot of comparisons were being drawn between this and Stuxnet which uh, th there's any number of documentaries to talk about that now. But that is why this was particularly difficult because once you got a hold of those keys, you could continue to execute against an elevated set of controls and you know who knows what havoc could be wreaked there. Absolutely, you could start increasing the production output and make things more efficient and make your appliances run a lot faster or you could shut down the world, break very expensive production cycles, and cause a lot of pain. I mean, That's when right. I think about cybersecurity, I typically think about networks and endpoints. So I think of laptops, desktops, servers, I think of routers, firewalls, and all that fun. But I often right. forget about the industrial impact of all of these situations. So if you're a manufacturing company, if you're a production company, turning down a factory floor or turning things off could have significant impact to your overall timeline delivery or the general cost of production. So knowing that programmable logic controllers, the, the brains and the heart of very, very important software is vulnerable and can be broken, I don't know, that makes me feel like I can't really sleep as comfortable at night. <laughs> if this is vulnerable, what else could be? That's right. And and so typically speaking, as far as best practices, there's always been a question around industrial uh, Internet of Things because of the fact that they're so critical to to manufacturing. There is often not many opportunities to bring those down and to do the appropriate maintenance. So one of the first recommendations just from a cybersecurity practitioner standpoint is to really attempt to isolate those industrial IoT devices from a networking perspective. We really want to try to close the opportunities for threat actors to access those so that you begin to buy yourself a little bit more time to be able to address those and to patch those on a regular basis and ensure that everything is working according to spec. Now, it's also understandable that there are some use cases in industrial IoT where you don't have the luxury to fully isolate those on their own network segment, for example, if not a full air gap. So that's really where you're still going to want to make sure that you have a very robust IPS an intrusion prevention system, and you want to have those network protections in place that are going to at least be able to identify any of that traffic that is going to those controllers that you know does not belong. But this this indeed is a it's it's a it's a one of tremendous concern to the industry. Absolutely, anything with internet connectivity has a risk. Everything That's with right. network connectivity has a risk. So. If you're just focusing on your IoT, your Internet of Things, your smart fridges, your smart coffee pots, all connecting to the Internet, every single one of those poses a risk in a whole. But people get okay. complacent if they have a device that doesn't connect to the Internet, but it has to communicate with other things locally, such as production machines. So knowing that everything is vulnerable makes you want to establish that converged perimeter approach. And I know it's very much a theme of what we're doing today, talking about perimeter security. But if you can block anything from getting into the local LAN segment, your local office, your local branch, all the devices, that's the best way. You know, prevention right. is always better than cure. Always. It is.
Well, that's what <laughs> my doctor keeps telling me and says, hey, Robin, if you go to the gym a bit more, then you won't have broken knees in 10 years. And joke's on him, I'm going to break my knees at the gym. <laughs> Deadlifts are fun. <laughs> so, talking about turning something terrible into something good, let's talk about alchemy. Let's turn some lead into gold, turn from vulnerabilities into gold, and use some magic. So what alchemical actions have you been undertaking? <laughs> so interestingly, the alchemical actions are the results of those who really want to be enablers. And in this case, we are enabling threat actors that maybe don't have the expertise that they ordinarily might. Uh, we're giving them the opportunity to do some very advanced uh, attacks by providing them with a framework that really makes uh, a script kitty seem like an expert. So in, in Alchemist's particular case, this is a command and control framework. It essentially is like downloading a menu-driven piece of software that will generate your own botnet which is, is quite fascinating because we know that there's a lot that goes into that. There's been some news recently that I'm, I'm sure we're probably going to cover on our next episode as we watch how it plays out. But that is what Alchemist is. It's a command and control framework. It allows somebody who has no expertise to deploy a, a botnet for themselves to develop remote shell code and commands. And it also puts a beacon in place on the compromised endpoints in this particular case, it's a remote access Trojan called Insect. That's Insect with a K instead of a C. And by implanting that, this ready-to-go tool set, and by you know selecting a few menu items, you now have control of your own botnet. For those who aren't aware, can you explain beaconing? Sure can. So in the case of a botnet, or some people call them zombies, the compromised endpoints will have a little piece of software that exists. And that piece of software from time to time will reach out to a centralized server looking for orders. What is it that you want me to do? That's what a beacon is. So in this particular case, Insect, in addition to giving remote access, will beacon out to whatever the user chooses as their centralized control server looking for orders. Now, if there's no orders, the beacon will simply go quiet and then we'll try again in some other either predetermined or random amount of time. That's what makes this difficult because the amount of traffic is very, very small and it can be very, very difficult to detect if you're simply looking at it from a network activity basis. That's what the beacon tries to accomplish. And then once it does reach out to that centralized server that lives somewhere in the cloud, it will get its orders and then it will begin to execute its payload. And that's typically where you then begin to see uh, increased network traffic. So theoretically, an endpoint could be compromised six months ago, but the beaking in delay has led it to only come active today. So That's if you right. try and do ret retrospective analysis of when something actually got infected, if you're trying to identify the target vector, it can be almost impossible, especially with the volume of logs you can get from an individual device. That is absolutely true. That's the human element again, right? And and going quiet is one of the best ways to try to evade detection. Yes, yeah. either software or if you're working as a large company and you just want to get by to retirement. You don't put your head above the trenches, you sit back, you take it easy and hope nobody ever discovers you. It's the human element, <laughs> right. it's what happened. So if, you, if this Alchemist tool, software package, I'm not sure how you'd refer to it, 
is currently available and allowing anybody to build their own botnets and their own script, surely this is going to increase the total frequency of attacks. Very similar to our last episode where we discussed caffeine or phishing as a service. How does, how do you think this is going to change the overall landscape of security assaults? Well, we're seeing an evolution and not only is it a case of, uh, as we talked about caffeine in the last episode of threat actors really monetizing their expertise and making it easy for those who maybe don't have the skill set. This is the same thing. Now, in this particular case, this is not monetized. This is an, an easily downloadable tool set and it's ready to go literally right out of the box. It's ready to go. You simply plug in the parameters and off you go. So you're right, Robin, this is going to increase the potential number of, of attacks or attempts at attacks that, that folks try to make in order to act on the objectives that they're seeking to do. Even if the objective isn't related to theft of information, it could simply be, for example, a, a social attack, disagreeing with whatever the target is and what they stand for and, and using that for social attacks. Again, we, we have to go back to basics on this. We have to understand the cybersecurity triad. We have to understand the different ways that attacks can take place. But most importantly, we have to understand human motivation. What is it that people are looking to accomplish? And understand that with this accessibility, that of necessity means that the frequency of attacks are going to increase. I like that you mentioned human motivation or the motivation of the attack. Now, in my younger years, I was a much more curious individual and I wasn't focused too much on the overall impact of my actions. Some were good, some were bad, no convictions were made. However, <laughs> if I was to see something like Alchemist pop up and I would think, oh, I want to test this. I want to try just to see what it does. Now, if I'm I don't know, a junior security engineer or just a curious nerd working at a bank or working at a pharmaceutical company or manufacturing, I could just try and download this onto my local machine, launch it and see what the impact is. As far as I'm aware, everything's good. I've tried, I've tested, I've educated myself. But this could be an, un, well, an accidental insider threat because people are curious. People want to learn, people want to adapt and change. So in the event that somebody does accidentally launch one of these services and try to compromise individual devices inside an organization into that zombie botnet, what do? What next? Great question. So again, we need to have a converged, simple to manage solution that is going to look at all elements. In this particular case, we're going to look for that command and control traffic. That's the purpose of an intrusion prevention system. So you're going to want to make sure that that's in place as those beacons begin to go out small though they may be, that's going to detect that. And furthermore, we're commoditizing this, unfortunately for the threat actors and maybe fortunately for us, they're utilizing a package that has a known signature in the form of insect. In that particular case, next gen anti-malware is going to detect that that's a remote access Trojan and also shut that down. So that's really the ultimate way to do it. You need to be proactive. You said it earlier, prevention versus cure. That's where you need to look. You need to look to prevent this because the curiosity will happen and threats can be innocent sometimes too. Again, you say they're using insect. They're using insect currently. 
Now all people have to do is change that malware, do something custom, something bespoke. You know, start selling ransomware as a service, as we've seen a whole bunch of vendors do. I say vendors, they're technically, I think, terrorist groups is the term, but people like uh, R-Evil or Revil out there mm. saying, how much money can you give us? We'll do the attacks for you. If your firewalls, if your IPSs, if your security appliances are not patched and updated to catch these brand new zero-day signatures, which you've never seen anywhere, this alchemist situation can go from being something manageable and predictable, something crazy, wild, and very expensive. If only there was a vendor out there that automatically updates their IPS feeds and you don't need to do any patching. I wonder, I wonder if you can think of any. Hint, I, hint, I, I bet we can head come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other aspect from a technical perspective, Robin, and I, I love that you're, you're bringing out this nuance. It really, it's, it's incredibly important that the solution that you have is able to be updated quickly. And that's certainly something that we offer um, just as a native part of, of being a customer of Cato Networks. There also though, is the fact that creativity is endless and threat actors will always find ways to get around signatures. We can do mutable code, for example, and that makes it very difficult for a signature uh, to be detected. But there's a reason I keep mentioning next generation anti-malware. Next generation anti-malware, let's unpack that term a little bit, is also going to look at malware from a heuristic perspective. It's going to look at behaviors, not necessarily simply signatures. By implementing a next generation anti-malware that is aware of that and can identify behaviors and begin to flag those as being potentially suspicious without having to send them to a sandbox to investigate, and that's a very important differentiator, we don't need to send them to a sandbox. We have that, all of that information is very, very close to the customer at all times and the behavioral approach is going to detect those mutations and understand that what we're seeing here is a remote access Trojan, even though we might not be able to put a label on it, we still know what it is. Don't just look for the barcode. <laughs> if, you're right. if you're a cashier and somebody sends you something and there's no barcode on it, you can see it's an apple. It looks like an apple, smells like an apple. Don't taste it. Don't take a bite out of a customer's apple but you can use those multi-data points to actually identify what that is, even though you don't have a direct code, which there is one of the benefits you get from that joyous converged architecture. Now, right. next-gen anti-malware, next-gen, I like it. We're looking forward, but I'd like to turn around a bit and discuss something that we mentioned in a previous episode, uh, Mirai. Mirai isn't right. over yet, so what's been happening? Well, you know, when we talked about this way, way back in our first episode, uh, we identified the fact that from our perspective, from Cato Network's perspective, we saw this as one of our top 10 intercepts. We could see that there was a lot of activity that was taking place around Mirai. And now for those who may not recall or haven't seen the first episode, Mirai is an interesting bit of malware that compromises Linux IoT devices. And once again, we're talking about a botnet, Robin. These will simply, Mirai will simply sit on a Linux-based uh, IoT device and wait for that central server to give it orders. Now, in this particular case, it's almost like we saw into the future by looking back at the past. We identified that as a top 10 intercept, and lo and behold, 
we ended up seeing one of the largest DDoS attacks that have ever been identified by content delivery network provider Cloudflare. Uh, specifically, this was against the WinCraft Minecraft server. For those in the Minecraft community, you're probably familiar with WinCraft. But Robin, we saw an attack that peaked at 2.5 terabits per second. This was a big one. That's a lot of data. That's a lot of Minecraft blocks being uh, being attacked. Wow. So Cloudflare, for those who aren't aware, a kind of a, would you say, a small CDN, Content Delivery Network? A teeny tiny, right? No, <laughs> yes, nothing important made... is behind Cloudflare. Yeah, you may have heard of them. Absolutely. No, they're, they're big. And for them to say it's the largest ever, you know that it's got to be pretty significant. And, and this one was significant. Yeah, in the past, when there's been Cloudflare outages, it's been noticeable to the everyday public. That's Most right. of our security incidents that happen, the general public have no idea what's happening because we live in a completely different world where if we do our jobs correctly, we don't have to worry about the public backlash. But when you That's have, right. well, when I had my mother saying, oh, I can't access this website, there's, uh, <laughs> there's cause for concern. Oh, That's did you right. say what's that? Two terabits a second. Is that the number? Two and a half terabits a second. That's right. That is a lot of data. That is a lot yeah. of, of pain. So what can you do to prevent being attacked by Mariah at any point? I'm sure we have other CDN operators listening today or people worried about the overall impact. What would you recommend? That's right. So again, it does come down to two things. Best practices for IoT devices. You have got to be careful if, to, to make sure that those are not exposed to the internet at large. That's number one, is, is just that be wise about your segmentation. Number two, though, is keeping your next generation anti-malware in place. That would be able to identify that this is simply a piece of malware. It is easily identifiable. And as we said, that was something that we saw as the traffic ramping up tremendously. And here we go, right? We end up seeing a massive attack using that piece of malware. So very important, not only to ensure that you've got that converged security solution, pay attention to it even when things are quiet because that's going to give you insight into potential attacks that may be coming down the road. Always good to keep your eye on things, be aware, keep up with the industry and understand that sometimes we hear these things coming before they actually hit. Absolutely, like the calm before the storm. If things that's are really right. quiet, you need to start panicking. You need exactly. to start preparing. When your house is on fire, that's not the right time to buy a fire extinguisher. You have missed it. Also, general <laughs> advice from anybody, if you don't own a plunger currently, go and buy one. It's much better to wow. have one in a cupboard than be in a literal something storm. Keeping this- Even Amazon can't bail you out fast enough on that one, Rob. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so that's one of the things. So as we look towards keeping a next-gen anti-malware up to date, and I know quite a few customers or people listening right now might see it as a very weighty thing to implement. K2 is actually pretty simple with getting a next-gen anti-malware up and running. For us, it's enabling a toggle switch and a slider. If your traffic is going through the Kato backbone, we can just enable that service, enable that license, and give you instantaneous protection. No configuring business groups, user payloads, trying to match MD5 hashes. You don't have to worry about that because Kato right. provides all of this in one single pass architecture and much more. But I'm not here to sell to people, but if you'd like, hey, reach on out. <laughs> so all in all, Bill, it's been a pretty, pretty wild week. And I wonder what's going to come for the next one. 
Thank you for your time today. Until next Pleasure. time, folks, have a great day and stay safe out there. Bye for now. Take care.